Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System, which is the company I started after I wrote the book Built to Sell. You know, if you're interested in working with us, what we're going to have you do is start by completing your Value Builder questionnaire. We're going to give you a score out of a possible 100, and that's going to relate to how acquirers would view your business. The lower the score, the worse off you are, the higher the score, the better you are. And the average business who starts with us gets a score 59 out of possible 100. Now, if you work with us over time, we're going to have you work on these eight key drivers of your company's value. Think things like recurring revenue, structure of your management team, your financial performance, your growth potential. And at the end of that process, if you're able to get your score up to a score of 80 or greater, we can see statistically, now having worked with more than 20,000 businesses, that you're going to go on to improve the value of your business by an average 71%. So there's a demonstrable economic benefit to working with us. The first step is to get your value builder score. And you're going to do that by going to valuebuildersystem.com. You know, when you start a business and your ultimate goal is to sell it, you're going to make different decisions along the way than if you start a business with no ultimate goal in mind. Our next guest is a woman named Biata Chalette. And she started her business with a view to one day selling it. And she was in the photography rights business. And when she negotiated her licensing deals with the photographers, she made sure to include the fact that those rights would in fact transfer to the new owner of her company because she knew she was going to sell this company one day. And if there's one piece of advice I can share is that as you start and grow your business, think of the end in mind because you're going to make different decisions. As you'll hear from Beata, key decisions that will ultimately define the success of your exit. Here's Beata Shillette. Beata, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I can't wait. So tell me a little bit about this company, Beata Works. What an original name. Tell me about it. Well, you know, the name really came from because one of my first clients was what, which happened to be Levi Strauss, Germany, found me because somebody said, call Beata in Los Angeles. And I'm like, well, if they can find me by that alone in a city like Los Angeles, I better be making this my business name. So the company that I sold to Bill Gates was a creative uh, company specialized in architecture, interior, and celebrity at home photography. So imagine, John, you go to the bank and you you know, you know, put your money in and then behind it, there's this photo of the kitchen of this gorgeous kitchen. And it says, do you need money to refinance your home? That could have been an image of ours. You go to Home Depot and you pick up a paint brochure like Glidden Paint and you look at those images of homes and walls and all kinds of colors. Those were the images we provided. You go uh, to the doctor and you pick up one of the magazines and you see these gorgeous celebrity at home stories of Madonna, Simon Baker, Julian Moore, Francis Ford Coppola. Chances are that one of these stories or all of them were from us. Wow. You must have incredible exposure to some of the most beautiful homes in the world. It must be really tempting. You know, I think that your your taste level really goes up exponentially as to what is beautiful because you see just the most astonishing, astonishing things. And, you know, the celebrity home portion of things wasn't really what I had set out to be. It was a side product. It just happened so 
that I was able to secure agreements with the world's some of the world's top interior and architectural photographer. And because they're at the top, they work with the top architects and the top interior designers who happen to decorate the homes of the rich and the famous. And that's how I sort of fell into the celebrity home stuff. And let me just say, people spend a lot of money on living well. <laughs> I want to get to the sale of the business in a moment, but I got to ask, so who's the most interesting person you've met? What's the most interesting, awe-inspiring interior you've ever seen from a famous person? Oh, that's really interesting. I find, uh, to be honest, I thought that uh, Julian Moore's home in New York was was done just absolutely exquisitely. I, I did. I must, like... I must be getting old. I don't even know who Julian Moore is. Ah, <laughs> she's the big actress, uh, the one, the redhead, uh, that um, you know. The kids are okay. Who's who? Who was in, who was the, the the lesbian girlfriend? So she she played in that Julian Moore. So there you go. And... I'm a complete ignoramus when it comes to pop culture. We just get that out on the table right away. No, 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 no problem at all. And I did. Uh, I did like sort of some of the sort of more understated things. I thought that Simon Baker had a pretty livable home because, you know, he's a parent, he has kids, he has a family. So it felt like they really incorporated the the outside and the inside with everything. But for the most part, I mean, when you work with the best people, they, they deliver exactly what you what you want them to deliver. And it's as I said, exquisite. So what was the business model? You had these stock photographs that you were selling to advertising agencies. Let me just, just maybe describe the business model a little bit. Yeah, so basically the business model was that this was a time where um, all of a sudden this whole attention to your home became very, very popular. So that was the time when Kmart, JCPenney, um, has, you know, when they started to first create these 600 thread sheet counts and nobody really even knew what there was back then, but all of a sudden the entire attention was to living really well. And, um, I found that the, because I, my background is photography, that some of the best photographers were still shooting on four by five film and the digitization had started to begin, you know, asset management and sort of much larger content. So we have then, you know, I found this, I had this idea that I was going to go after the top guys in the industry who were then, uh, you know, who didn't have the money to digitize um to digitize their images. And so I went after the top guys. So my model was to, to go ahead and have uh, people buy individual images for advertising, very much like what we talked about, Bank of America, Wells Fargo Bank, Glidden Bank, Home Depot, those types of people, uh, to provide images for, um, for magazines and for editorials and for... Um, and then, you know, uh, celebrity home stores or home stores for people for, for magazines in general. So we had a variety of different revenue streams. And not just did we license those images directly, but we also had 79 licensing agreements all over the world where people re-licensed and resold our images. So who owned the physical image? Did the photographer retain the ownership of it and you were simply licensed for, for the purpose of advertising? Well, this was the best part about this business is that um, we we didn't own really anything. We had to 
uh, we just had the license. So we had a an exclusive first rights license, right of first refusal. So anything that our photographers were producing, we were allowed to uh, to keep, uh, you know, distributing through our through our channels. And when I, you know, and I thought that was really such a such an unusual way to do business because I didn't own anything, but because I, I got them to give me their best material and they didn't have to pay for it because I made them such a great offer that I was taking care of the digitization cost out of pocket against future royalties. They were uh, bound to me and I could create these really tough contracts or these really great contracts, depending on how you look at it, that I was completely in charge of everything that they were producing. And so when we sold the company, it still was that they bought the right to our licensing agreements. We still didn't own anything. Interesting. I want to get to that in a moment, but just give me a sense of how, how big the company got before you sold in terms of either revenue or number of employees. Just give us a you know a proxy or a frame of size so we can get a sense of, of the size of Beataworks before you sold it. Okay, so we had a revenue of about a million dollars, and we licensed in 79 countries. We had eight uh, eight employees, and we had, I want to say, probably a good thirty to 50,000 images in our archives. Fantastic. So, I mean, the business is going well. You've got all these celebrities. I mean, what was the trigger that made you want to sell? You know, there comes a moment where... Um, where in a market, things are really heating up. And so there was this moment in this market, uh, you know, in the stock, uh, in, in the content production, where things had heated really up a lot, and then everything started to calm down. And then all of a sudden, there was this this moment where, again, there was a buying frenzy. So a friend of mine had a company that he sold for $75 million. Then there was this other company that bought this other company. There was a new player in the market who wanted to go head-to-head with uh, with Getty Images and with, with, with Corbis. You know, it was Jupiter, uh, Jupiter Images. And so they bought sort of everything that was because they wanted to be the number three player in the market. And that was just sort of this window where things really started to heat up. And when I – go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. And so when we were in uh, at a at an industry event, and my friend who sold for seventy five million said to me that he just had sold his company, then he looked at me and he turned around and he looked at me and he says, "And you, my dear, you are next." I'm like, "What are you talking about? Oh, I can't believe it! You know, that's just ridiculous." And then I did think about it, and I had something that nobody else had. I had figured out on how to do on how to, you know, sort of, while I didn't create the at-home story, but I did make it a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, I was the number one provider and the top two providers in the world with these types of stories. We couldn't sell them. We couldn't get them fast enough. And we sold them and sold them and sold them. Sometimes we sold 30 overnight. And then I thought, how can I, how can I bank in on that? And that's when it happened. And then somebody said, well, what's your number? And I said, oh, I don't know. What do you mean by that? What's the number? Yeah, and that's for, when, for detail, uh, who, who's asking what's your number? So this is the gentleman that I have been, 
you know, that I've been talking to who sold this business who for 75 million. And he says, everybody has a number. He says, you need to know what your number is. What is your number? And so this is my friend who, who was also a mentor of mine when I first started to come out with this business. And so I said to, you know, his name, his name is Jeff Burke. And so I said to Jeff, I don't know what my number is. And he says, well, that's how, that's where you have to start. If you want to sell your business or even consider selling your business, you need to know what that number is. And you need to be able to, um, you know, to base this number on a number of different criteria, which is what, what would make it worthwhile for you to sell it for? What would really change your life? And what's sort of, what will make all of this be worth it? If you get that. So I knew that for me that, you know, $500,000 wasn't going to be worth it. I knew a million dollars wasn't going to be worth it. So it had to be much, much more than that. So my number, you know, and you and I, we talked about this a little bit is like, what is that number? So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. And how did you figure that out? I mean, what's the math you're doing behind the scenes to figure out, you know, what what math, what number you need to hit to to be able to never have to work again? Well, here's the secret, John. So part of it is really making it up as you go. Part of it is also justifying what your thought process is. Part of it is your intuition. And also, if you are in something that's sort of really hot and buzzing. So for the most part, people say um, that uh, it's revenue times a multiple. And some people say it's net revenue times a multiple, which I think is insanity. I would never sell for a net revenue times multiple. I only would sell for gross uh, times multiple. And so a good multiple is anywhere between, let's say, 3 to 20. Um, Most often, I want to say, probably the multiples I have heard of with the people that have sold companies around me are somewhere between the one, one time to about 10, the most multiple and, and, you know, anything that's sort of above four or five times multiple, unless you're a hot internet company is, is considered pretty, pretty decent. And be, so, be for clarity, you're, you're referring to multiples of revenue or multiples of earnings. Multiple of revenue. Yeah. So, you know, from, from my perspective, running the value builder system, those are astronomical multiples. I mean, we would, we would see on average, uh, businesses, you know, on the low end, very small businesses trading at sort of two or three times EBITDA. Uh, uh, so, you know, pre-tax profit, uh, uh, is another way to think about that all the way up to, you know, we've seen examples of, you know, nine, 10 times EBITDA, but those are really exceptional outliers. So you're, you're referring to an industry where you're looking at multiples of revenue, which is more, you know, more common in software. So this must have been a very hot market. It was a very, very hot market. And and I did something that nobody else was doing. So, or had figured out because it was, um, you know, especially in the celebrity model, where uh, people are so hot for anything celebrity, I mean, the, the stuff just sells. There's there's no thinking about it. You know, it's not that uh, it doesn't take a lot of effort. If you have Madonna's house, Madonna's house will sell. If you have Francis Ford Coppola's retreat in Costa Rica, it will sell because people will want to see how people live. Go back to your number for a second because I find this fascinating. So, so you're trying to figure out your number. Um, are you looking at it in a very... You know, the, the, the engineer in me says, okay, uh, you know, 
a million dollars at four percent because every financial advisor says you can pull out four percent. So that's forty grand a year. You know, is that going to cover my lifestyle? I mean, were you doing a number like that in your mind, or or was it? Yeah, yeah, you were. Yeah, I was doing. This is what was going through my head. So at that time, I was about. Um, four years, five years away from sending my daughter, my daughter to college. I had done what a lot of people say is the right thing to do. I put a hundred dollars aside for my daughter ever since she's been born. So I had about at that time, I want to say about twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars in a college fund, which is nothing to sneeze on. But um, really, does this get anybody through college these days? Of course, it doesn't. So, so I I looked at this at this equation. What will it allow me to do? I need I need to put my daughter through college. I, you know, if I if I buy a house, and if I have a decent house in Los Angeles, what will the house cost me? What will my monthly payments will be? What's the mortgage? What's what are all the other expenses? And sort of what is a lifestyle that I want to live at? So for me, and I think this is sort of the differentiation between me and sort of a lot a lot of other people that sell their businesses for me this particular sale the first sale and i you know have plans for for more in the future is that i wanted this money to be there and the investments i calculated were going to be invested in such a way that i could live off the interest on a pretty good six-figure salary if you so want to. So that was my that was my 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 reasoning behind selling excuse, for what I did for it. Excuse the crude sort of analogy, but it's kind of like the ultimate FU money, right? It gives you the, the freedom to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. Exactly. And that to me is why you sell a business. Because if you know and I had another offer which was a, a an absolute low ball offer and when I looked at it and then the contract that they had offered, they said, well, you know, and then you have to go in and you have to run it and you have to grow it. And I said, why would I sell it to you for, 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 for peanuts and then get myself hired by you as no longer the boss and then still be responsible for it? I said, that doesn't make any sense. So it really helps when you want to sell a business to get very clear. What is it that you want to get out of it? And then you follow that because if it doesn't create the freedom, if it doesn't create any kind of benefit, if it doesn't give you that, as you said, um, the ability to, 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 to make choices based on your leisurely thinking, then why bother? So it's about selling a business really about being at the right time, at the right place, and then recognizing this is the time to sell. So take us through that. So you're you're at the trade show. Your buddy's sold for seventy five million. You you're, you say okay, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. You know, did you hire an M and A banker to take you to market? Did you like at what, take me to the point where Bill Gates knocks on your door and says we'd like to buy your company? Well, at that time, what had happened is that my licensing agreement. So this uh, the event that I went to was a licensing, uh, the annual licensing convention. So everybody who was licensing something or looking to find new agreements was going to this this conference. So I am you know I'm here I'm I'm showcasing my wares people you know people falling left and over 
everybody wants to have what I have to offer because I, I offer celebrity homes. So I started to uh, prepare after I left sort of a, a plan on how I was going to create yet another brand to create a third revenue stream. And in the following event, which was a six months later, uh, the following convention, I was unveiling sort of the launch of this new brand and I did a promotional event and we had all hands on deck. So I had it planned out as making sort of a pretty flashy, uh, how would I say that, uh, you know, a, fl a pretty flashy way to show up so people would notice me. So I threw the big event on on that next big industry event. So everybody had to come to my event. And then we were sort of featuring and showcasing everything that we had done. And then people wanted to do the agreements with us and we, we had even more licensing agreements. And because of the celebrity stores being such a hot commodity, this company, uh, Corbis, that had bought a couple years previously outline and outline was specialized in celebrity images and they could not grow this business model in within their other business because they couldn't add any more photographers with any more celebrity photos for some reason so they, they they've been trying unsuccessfully to increase the revenue of this particular brand outline and so when they saw the celebrity at home stories and they saw how much money I made with it and how automated I had it and how many of these we were just running through and how we were handling the a publicist approval and all of that stuff, they said, well, we want you to tell us how you do it. And I said, why would I tell you how I do it? If you want to know how I do it, you have to, you have to buy my business. And then they said, Okay. So this happens at a trade show. Tell me about Corbis. I mean, and, and, and what's Bill Gates' affiliation with Corbis? So Bill Gates uh, holds several companies privately. So, the, uh, so Corbis was a project by Bill Gates back when he had first envisioned that people were living with imagery sort of uh, very much like wallpapers, right? So we, we had these LED wallpapers and we could transport ourselves by having all these images in our living rooms into the forest or onto the beach uh, type of thing. So it was like really a passion project of his. And he had started to buy some some archives with some of the best photography. And uh, the business that he had envisioned did not work. But, you know, next thing he knows, he's in the stock photography business. And so he had bought Outline because it was the flagship of uh, and the most reputable company of celebrity uh, photography. And that's, you know, and so he just holds, he owns Corbis 100% outright personally. So tell so, us about the negotiation with Corbis. What, so you have this conversation, you say, you know, you got to buy my company. They said, okay. So take us to, to the, you know, when the check clears, what, what, what happened leading up to that? So basically what happens is they said, we, um, we want to buy your company. What's your number? Luckily, I did have my number. So they were listening to my number and they said, I don't think, uh, uh, they said, well, we're going to have to do our due diligence. And so the, the purchase price really wasn't 
uh, confirmed until they pretty much were, were were way into their due diligence and had looked at all of our sales and and all of that kind of good stuff. And um, they made me sort of the revised offer, which was not that far away from what I had originally wanted. Definitely still the number that I was aiming for. And then, I mean... So to be clear, the revised offer was lower than the one you'd shared with them. Yes, it was lower. Not not by all that much, but... Um, but you know, still, still a number that makes me smile to this day, to had, say the least. Had they agree, had they agreed to to the original number before due diligence, or had they just asked you what it was and said, "Okay, thanks, we'll take that you know under consideration"? Yes, pretty much. They, I think, they just wanted to gauge on where I was, on on where I was with with um, with my negotiation. If I considered having a high ticket item. Or if I or if I positioned myself sort of lower in the market, and I think that's really part of the pricing, John. And maybe that's important to point out. I think when you name your number, that's really when people say, "What is your number?" That's what they're really looking for. They're looking for are you sort of conservative by the numbers? Say, you know, this is the proper valuation, or do you say, "I have a hot commodity. I do believe that this is a prestigious." Uh, um, piece to buy and to add onto your offering, or I believe is a, peep, a, pe- a key puzzle to what you're trying to do in the future. And therefore I put a premium to it, but I definitely put a premium to it. Big premium. It's interesting because clearly we, in working with customers through the value builder system, we say, look, don't ever put a price on your business. Let the buyer put a price on your business because the only thing you're going to do by, by, by naming a number uh, to a buyer is putting a ceiling on your, your – your, but, but in, in your case, you did the opposite. You gave them a number and, and it, it ultimately – it worked out okay for you, it sounds like. Yes, and I think that there's probably, uh, you know, as you say, probably two schools of thoughts behind it. For me, it was about I knew that the multiple I was going for was 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 pretty significant. I mean, it was a significant multiple. And so I knew that probably nobody out of their own right mind would would offer me such a significant multiple. So I was going to come up with that multiple by myself. And then they said, well, that's a pretty significant multiple. How do you arrive at that? And I said, well, you know, look, look at our growth rate. Look at this, look at that. And then you justify all the reasons why you're demanding what you demanded. How did you justify it? Your growth rate? What all, what, give us the three point, you know, justification for such a premium multiple. Well, it was, first of all, the entry to market and the rapid growth. It was the uh, increase in our licensing uh, in our licensing agreement and the interest that we had uh, garnered from all the people around us that had said um, they, they they wanted it. We we uh, we said to them that we were not relying on them alone. That we knew we could grow this business on our own further. We also knew that they didn't, there was nobody else in the market that could have been bought because I, I set my business up for sale. So when I started my business, I set my business up in such a way that I knew that one day I could sell it. So that was one of my, 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 my requirements. And most people in my genre, in the uh, stock photography field and the photography field, don't build businesses for sale. They build businesses based up on, um, you know, sort of, the, the, the classic pattern, I had this idea, it's growing, you know, maybe somebody's interested in this, but I was very specific, very deliberate about the way I've set it up. And so for me, 
I said, you know, the transaction's going to go fast. You're going to close fast. The way I've set it up, it's 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 designed to be integrated into another business very very quickly. I got the staff, I got the people, everything is set up. Uh, it's a it's a slam dunk, and that's how I justified it. And how did you ensure the the licensing agreements you had with the photographers would transfer to the new owner? Because that's part of uh, how I had set it up originally. That in all my original licensing agreements. I had made a provision that I I had the right to uh, sell my company. So you go through this negotiation with Corbis. Uh, they give you a lower number than you you'd kind of originally throw it out, but it was still a very attractive number. Um, what else happened up to the consummation? Were, were there any other kind of forks in the road that you had to navigate before you actually signed on the dotted line to their agreement? Yes, I think that one of the things that I probably think is very, very important to talk about to anybody who's considering selling their business is you got to watch out for the people, especially your own people, because you have to be so quiet about what you're planning. And it is so toxic for the office or for your business because people know something's up, but they don't really know what's up. So they are worried and they talk. And you can't really tell them anything. And then you have to decide who you're going to fill in, of course, under complete secrecy. But then people are losing their jobs uh, or they think they're going to be losing their jobs. Or they may be keeping their jobs for a little bit, but they may be losing them somewhere down the road. And then they don't know if they're going to get something out of it. So the people, people aspect of selling a business is probably the most difficult, dangerous and most treacherous territory to cover in, 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 any, in anything I've ever done. I mean, the people really gave me a run for the money. How did you choose to handle it with your people? Well, first of all, I do believe that what goes, goes around comes around. So everybody who worked for me got a, um, a very generous um, payment. So we rewarded people for being with us. We rewarded people for, you know, we had a formula as how much time they've, they've been with the company and uh, what their contribution and their title was and seniority. And so some of our people really made, uh, uh, walked away with quite, quite a big uh, uh, a chunk of uh, pocket change, more than they'll ever make in a lump sum payment working for anybody else, for sure. And I wished that I probably would have worked closer with the HR department from the get-go. You know, Corbis had a very, very good HR department. So, you know, luckily I had that. But would I do it again? I would pay more attention to a better plan to not have people freak out. What do they freak out over? They freak over. They freak out over. Um, you know, and I, I think this is the good and the bad thing at the same time. So my people were, and I didn't know this, but they were emotionally so invested in what we were doing in our, our, our group, our, our eight people, that people, people cried. People were personally and emotionally upset about this business being sold and this community changing. What did you so, say? To, what did you say to them? Did you get everyone around in the boardroom and say, Hey guys, I've got some news. I mean, t- give, tell us what you said. Yeah, it's what you do. You basically bring them all in and then you and then you say you say you know we've we've uh, we we're, we're selling the company we've been made an offer and uh, I've accepted the offer and effectively 
you know, effectively immediately we have a new owner and we are now uh, beginning the integration process and we um, have uh, created a a package and the HR person was right there with me. I said, so we're going to immediately get you started on finding out what that means for you because there's no, you know, you don't let them wait. So, so each one of you is now going into a meeting with um, the HR person from Corbis to find out exactly what it's going to, what it's going to take. There was only one person that was going to be let go immediately, um, which, which this person expected. Everybody else was, um, you know, was being taken on. And, uh, you know, and I think at that point, as much transparency as possible is really key. So the offer that you accepted, did it have an earnout component to it where you had to meet certain goals in the future in order to meet the, you know, to get the, the full compensation of the offer? Uh, no. What I had done is I had, I believe in, I, I believe in honorable transactions. So the calculations that I had made and the calculations that I had made with the, uh, the financial people at Corbis and uh, what, what we had, our growth plan and our integration plan and our, uh, and our everything, it, it, I was involved in every single part of it. My goal was not just to sell my company and then turn around and flip my finger. My goal was I wanted my photographers that had put their trust in me to make more money. I wanted the people that uh, had worked for me and had brought me there to, you know, be able to put something on their resume and say, you know, we we started working for this little company and next thing we worked for Bill Gates company and that was the beginning of a great future career. So my my objective was to make sure everybody got something out of it. I personally trained the entire sales force from Corbis. I created the sales materials. I recorded the sales training. I've I've created the you know with the marketing department all the materials. I was responsible to make sure that the integration was going at a hundred percent. And I estimated the sales. Uh, I I said that they were going to get a return on their investment within three years, and they got their return on investment exactly when I predicted. So none of your compensation was necessarily tied to no. your, you know, your no. future performance. No. And was that a, was that a sticking point in the negotiation? Did they ask for an earnout, and and did you turn them down, or what was the? Um, I don't remember if they did or didn't, but I can tell you that would have I, I would have would have been a deal breaker. That would have not been um, because at that point when you when you sell a licensing business. Uh, there's so much relationships involved. You know, we're not talking about putting something on a truck and driving it from A to B. We're talking about people and about people giving you um, giving you uh, things that they produce on licensing agreements. So a lot of relationships, you know, the relationships really are key in a business like that. And I could not be responsible for the relationships that Corvus would have with uh, with my people. So you get this big check. What's life like today? I mean, are you traveling the world or hold up in Los Angeles with another startup? What are you doing these days? Oh my gosh, John, what am I thinking? So, so there's a couple of things that need to be said about this. So first of all, I do believe, and uh, you know, I don't know if other people that sell their business feel the same way, but I believe that when, especially a single mom, woman, entrepreneur, immigrant in a creative business, has managed to become a self-made millionaire, that there is a great obligation to share the information. 
And so I retired for a day. So I sold my company. Corbis made me an offer to come on as a senior director for the entire entertainment division, which I did for another year and a half. And then I ultimately said, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't really want to work for anybody else. And I retired for a week. And then I immediately went back into building my business, supporting creative entrepreneurship, and especially women leaders, helping them to um, to figure out how to be successful, how to be a woman, how to be a mom, how to be in business without losing your mind. So where do people find you these days, Beata? On my website at beateschelette.com, and that spells B-E-A-T-E-C-H-E-L-E-T-T-E.com. Fantastic. We'll put that into the show notes. Beata, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.